Hello and welcome to Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and you are listening to a free preview of today's episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good. Hey, Andrew. Hi, everybody. I'm doing well. I'm just can't wait till we do this podcast in、um, sort of virtual reality with the Apple Visions that、uh, someday we'll all have. Right? It's true. It's true. Ben is pitching us on a vision for 2030 podcasting. We're all going to be in headsets. And Ben can- should Ben should buy、uh, visions for all of us. Everyone who's in his podcast network should get a a, a, a Stratechery、uh, Vision One headset. That's exactly right. Look, if you haven't listened to Sharp Tech over the last couple of days, we've been all headset all the time. So if you're a Stratechery subscriber, you can go to your show notes and listen to Ben Thompson's review of the Vision Pro.、Um, it's why we had to delay the podcast for a day this week to talk about this seismic new technology.、Um, but it's good to see you. Are you surviving the smoke-filled air around DC today? I mean, I lived in Beijing. Before the air got good again, so I mean it's bad, and I would not recommend exercising outside. But、um, sadly, this was millions of people's, tens of millions of people's existence most of the time for several years.、Um, so it's 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 too bad. I mean, you know, you don't always get to blame Canada, but、um, in this、yeah. case, sorry. But, <laughs>、um, one one thing though on the Vision Pro, what's interesting is actually a bunch of this、uh, like Apple supplier related stocks in China. Drop because the reviews were so poor. Interesting, sort of a big disappointment. Yeah, and so we'll see. I personally, I just, I, I really, I, I thought it was cool. But you know, the thing where you get to see people's eyes, like you can look into it.、Mm-hmm. Uh, my only request to a friend at Apple was, can I like put? Can you pick the face you put there? So can I look Tashi's <laughs> eyes? A younger face, maybe. Tashi's eyes, or、yeah. a younger face, or something. <laughs> right. I mean, imagine if we were all walking around with sort of weird. Weird avatar. Anyway, this is not a China discussion. No, no, but, no.、Uh, I I can imagine it, and it's not a future I want to inhabit. I think a lot of regular people who aren't obsessed with technology look at that and are pretty creeped out.、Um, and so, as much as Apple was designing that to make all the headsets sort of more normalized, I guess, and and make、yeah. people feel. More human.、Um, it actually, I found it pretty alien. It, it looked a little <laughs> so, creepy. And so, last bit, and we will get to our regular podcast. Is I do wonder if they launch us in China, how they're going to manage the censorship. Oh yeah.、Um, it, what in what regard? I, I don't know. I mean, how do you censor in virtual reality? Maybe it's the same way you censor in real re- in normal reality. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there are all sorts of I don't knows as far as the、uh, future of virtual reality. I have a sense that humans are just going to reject this long term,、uh, but I'm saving that haters case on VR for next week, so people can look forward to that on Sharp Tech. For now, let's talk China.、Uh, there's smoke throughout DC, and there's no better way to avoid strenuous outdoor activity than to stay inside and podcast together. We've got a lot of ground to cover today.、Uh, a bunch of good questions came through from the cynicism readers for the back half of the episode. But first and foremost, we could start with this note from Eric. He says, "I'm sure you both saw Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is planning to visit China, quote, in the coming weeks. I'd love to hear your views on that news." And for context, I'll read the report from Bloomberg that he's referencing. They write: Secretary of State Anthony Blinken plans to visit China in the coming weeks for talks with top officials, possibly including President Xi Jinping. People familiar with the matter said, as the U.S. looks to resume high-level communication despite continued tensions. The exact timing for Blinken's visit is still fluid, according to the people who asked not to be identified, discussing private deliberations. And while we're here, we should note that the State Department also sent Assistant Secretary Daniel Crittenbrink to China on June fourth and fifth. And you said on Substack notes earlier this week that you were hearing the Blinken visit was back on in the wake of the Crittenbrink visit.、Um, but then there was a report from the Global Times saying that the Foreign Ministry has not confirmed any of the rumors of a meeting. So. What do you make of all this generally? What's most interesting to you about where we are and how we got here? Well, so first of all, there's been no official confirmation from either side that that Blinken's trip is rescheduled.、Um, the Global Times 
I mean, the Chinese side won't confirm it until it's about to happen. Okay. Um, and so that statement of the Global Times is meaningless in terms of whether or not this is really happening. I think so. So the, you know, the Secretary of State Blinken was supposed to go, I guess, in February and then got delayed by the balloon, which at the time I certainly thought it was a mistake. You know, you should talk when it's tough, not just when it's easy. Since then, the U.S. has been trying to get this rescheduled. The China has been playing hard to get. This trip by the um, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia, as well as the Director for China, Senior Director for China and Taiwan Affairs, Sarah Biren, who used to be over at the State Department, um, and now she's in the National Security Council. Uh, this trip, you know, again, it follows on the National Security Advisor meeting with Wang Yi, to the top diplomat in Vienna a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have been talking. And so this trip looks like it paved the way for rescheduling the Blinken's trip, which is important. Again, you know, what's important, it's important to talk. It, 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 is, it is important, I think, not to, to give up a bunch of stuff or concede things just to talk. Um, yeah. But they're, they're, you know, they're sort of the like, oh, my God, we, you know, we're talking, we must be caving, which isn't necessarily true. But the, certainly the um, it's much better to sort of try and reestablish some sort of a regular set of communication channels to um but you know one of the one of the traps that has occurred repeatedly in US China relations and the Chinese are very good at setting it and the US is has tended to be pretty good at walking into it is that the talks themselves become the the thing that you make concessions for. Mm-hmm. Sort of you do that to get the talks before you actually have any outcomes. And so we'll see. This trip I think was Again, I'm, I think it's good that Secretary of State Blinken is likely going to be able to go to China now. But I think this trip arriving on June 4th, the 34th anniversary of Tiananmen Square, I think was unfortunate. The Chinese knew that. And I, I think that the U.S. side really, I, I think it would be much better if they'd arrived at 12.01 a.m. on June 5th. Yeah. Um, I also, I, I also why do is think that? I, will, I, I saw a number of people were very upset that they arrived. Well, on and, they, and, they, and they should be. The optics look bad. It doesn't like it doesn't. It just it's just a symbolic thing of like we can get the, the U.S. wants to talk. We'll tell them to come on this date where we know it. You know, it's a sensitive date. But the U.S. And, delegation wouldn't travel to China on June 4th, not out of deference to the CCP, but deference to the victims at Tiananmen Square. Correct? Just why even step into that optical mess? Yeah. And right. The, and, and is there any way it was just an oversight to, to, no, to arrive no. that day? OK, the so Chinese, that's it, sort it, of it one was, I was told it fit, it fit with the broader schedule of the Oscar going to the, this group is also going to New Zealand. Um but the Chinese wanted it the fourth. So you know what? They could have they could have pushed it. it it's not like and, and then the other issue, which again is unfortunate, is that you know, every year for 33 years now, the State Department puts out a statement on June 4th about what happened in 1989. Um, and this year the statement was significantly shorter mm-hmm. and softer. And that, from my understanding, was done um as part of this sort of ongoing dialogue about the trip and the blinking going to China. And, you know, I, I, I pretty confident that's the case. I think that's a big mistake if it is, because again, that just shows that, you know, we'll do make the U S will make concessions to have a meeting, which is, which is not what is, I think the right set of signals to send to China yeah, or to any, or to any country, frankly. And to be more specific, looking at the statements, which you tweeted, uh, I just pulled it up. I mean, the statement last year was three paragraphs and probably 500 or 600 words. And the statement this year was one paragraph and maybe yeah. I mean, I, looked, I went words. back and looked at a whole bunch of them and, and there this was a significant deviation. The other thing is the Chinese. We've been the U.S. has been doing this for 33 years. The Chinese kind of know it's just noise. Mm hmm. Right. It, it, and so and so the fact that that, that that this change was made while U.S. diplomats were flying into China or arriving in China on that day, again, just signals like, hey, we they really want to talk to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's strange, like after following all this for the past few months, my two big questions are what, if anything, are we conceding behind the scenes to try and repair the relationship here and restore communication? And then two what tangible benefits of engagement justify making those concessions. And I'm not sure we have enough information to arrive well, at like definitive answers in either no, case. No, I think, I mean, again, I, I think it's, it's, 
you know, I think engagement is a loaded term when it comes specifically to China. I think there's no question that there should be regular dialogue between different constituencies in both governments and militaries. Right. I think it's, for it's, reasons we discussed last week, it's just, we've it, discussed almost ad nauseum. Right. They they should be talking. Um, again, it the, the the talks aren't the end goal, and mm-hmm. and they're ha- they're it just it's just something where you you because of the history of the U.S. China relationship, there are certain sort of people or certain certain interests in the US who, you know, and, and some of them in power on the Hill, who are very much against just sort of talking for talking's sake, because for so long, in so many cases, you know, the US and China had these big dialogues where everyone worked to have the meeting. And then the Chinese, you know, you talk, 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 and they keep doing the stuff the US wanted them to stop doing. But because we were meeting or having these meetings, then people would say, well, we can't be mean, or we can't do mm. these things, because we're about to have a big meeting. So we got to defer, 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 and maybe things will get better. And, and it just, it just, it, it was a, it was a very, the Chinese are very happy to dialogue all decade if they can. Right. Um, and so and there are so, some people who see this as sort of like a relapse into that old. Well, and, and, and it's and it's not. And the, pro- the problem is, it's not this binary like talk or don't talk and get stuck in the trap. We have to be talking. But in terms of expectations, you know what? There have been a series of things that the, have been sort of the White House has talked about, other people in the administration have talked about, like around outbound investment screening and, and sort of limiting or, or restricting it investments from the US into certain sectors in mm-hmm. China, you know, mo- you know, high tech specifically, I think some some biotechnology ones, et cetera. Um, that, you know, every couple months or so there'll be a leak in Politico somewhere that like, oh, the screening rules are about to come out and they don't come out. Right. And so yeah. it's been like last fall, people thought they were coming out. And so one of the questions is, is that something that because now You've got likely a Blinken visit. Then after Blinken, there will probably be a visit from the Secretary of Treasury Yellen and the Secretary of Commerce Raimondo. Are these things then sort of delayed? Because mm-hmm. if if the U.S. pushes those out before one of these visits, the Chinese may say, well, don't come. And then you've got APEC in San Francisco, I believe, in November, where Xi Jinping is very much likely, very likely to come. You know, the Chinese side, the U.S. has, the Chinese side wants to come and have a good visit. So the U.S. has its own bits of leverage. Whether or not it uses it is unclear, but it has the ability because the Chinese have something they really want, which is a good visit for Xi. And whether or not it also becomes a state visit with Biden, that may be a stretch at this point. But I think it is important domestically, you know, to show Xi as this global statesman at APEC, same stature as Biden. Important domestically in China for Xi. In China, yes. And so... um, so what we but long answer though to your question, which is we don't know whether or not there will be actions that parts of the US government were planning that will now be delayed because they're talking again. Um the investment outbound investment may be one. Um there have been other things around um sort of refining the October seven semiconductor controls. Mm-hmm. Uh there's a big loophole for this server company Inspur that there's been talked about closing. To make it harder for, say, Intel to sell them chips, that keeps getting delayed. Uh, there's been talk about an action around Huawei, which was stopped by the sector of commerce. But my understanding, it was because it was really not well written. Yeah. Um, I think you'll hear more and more over the summer if some of these things, like the outbound investing stuff, continues to be delayed. Then again, back to the so every side has domestic politics. You'll probably start hearing more from parts of Capitol Hill questioning, you know, what is the Biden administration doing? And are they are they holding back because they're trying to have happy conversations? Now, one thing I will say is that yesterday, it was yesterday or Monday, while the two U.S. officials were in Beijing, the Treasury Department did announce sanctions, Iran-related sanctions that affected uh, several Chinese citizens and Chinese companies, and also included the, uh, I think it was the defense at the, the Iranian defense attaché to the embassy in Beijing. Okay, basically for uh, getting Chinese technology help to build ballistic missiles, I believe, without going, you know, getting deep in the real details. Interesting. Okay, so it's we're not completely rolling over here. As no, no, to- no, and, and and I think that's a caricature that we are, and I think again. The Chinese also have reasons they want to, they should be talking to the U.S. And so it's a little bit, I think, problematic if the U.S. is 
bending over backwards to convince the Chinese to have conversations by giving stuff away. And if that's, I'm not saying that's happening. That's certainly what some people are going to argue or are going to op as are going to criticize. If it turns out that's the case, that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. But we also, the U S should also, the Chinese have reasons to want to talk to. And frankly, lots of countries in the region in Asia want us to be talking. They are more likely to pressure America publicly because America will not have a tantrum. And we should all want to be talking. I I think the issue is there's a distinction. I mean, to summarize where we've been on this, there's a distinction between engaging solely for the sake of maintaining communication, which is a good idea. It's healthy to be talking and the other side of the coin is like censoring our own government speech simply for the sake of maintaining that communication, even if like the communication won't necessarily alter the fundamental dynamics of the relationship and what's been driving the tension. Right. It's like that's where I start to throw up my hands and say, what are we doing here? No, and, and structurally, I mean, there's no reason to believe that there'll be these these conversations will have any serious impact on really the core structural issues in the relationship and and specifically, you know, on the, what the Chinese call their core interests, like say Taiwan, South China Sea, um, just to name a couple where, um, you know, the U S isn't going to change its position. Right. Yeah. And China's certainly not moving on a lot of the issues that we find problematic. Um, you know, and that, and they're probably not going to. You wrote that it's good that Blinken is going before Secretary Raimondo and Janet Yellen, John Kerry, or anyone else. That is a victory. Um, and can you remind people why it's important that the secretary that well, the secretary think, goes first? Uh, you know, he was supposed to go in February, and he canceled. And the Chinese were upset. You know, even though it was their balloon, but um, and and then I think there was there was certainly been talk that you know, well, he doesn't go, but maybe the you know the 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 business focused types go like commerce treasury who the Chinese too seem to like better because they're not as, um, you know, not as focused on the bigger picture of the relationship and they, they tend to be a little more easy to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, also John Kerry climate star had said he'd been invited. And of course the Chinese and the Chinese did want him to go because they know that he's, he has a direct line to the president and he's an old friend of China, so to speak. They're comfortable talking to him. Yep. Um, Friendly and, audience. Sure. But the message from the Biden white house, my understanding through various channels was no, but it has to be blinking first, which is good. And again, he should go first and then the other visits can happen. Well, I think that's, and that's important. And again, it's more important is the other side in this case, China, but any country, they shouldn't get to dictate who, who goes in terms of, the representative. Yeah, absolutely. And your mention of commerce reminded me, you tweeted uh, over the weekend, you asked, were any members of the Crittenbrink delegation harassed at the border? Like at least one member of the earlier Department of Commerce trip was. Is there any more color to that? This is why people should follow you on Twitter for the record, is you'll throw out random nuggets uh, as far as... No, but it's one of those things that will probably show up in the press. Um, Yeah. You know, the US has certainly harassed... um, Visitors to the PRC, although I'm not aware of harassing members of official government delegations recently, um, certainly harass scholars. American scholars continue to have issues. Some of them have had issues recently at the border going to China. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just part of the general atmospherics of the relationship now. It's just much, much more tense. I was going to say, control. yeah, it, it underscores some of the tensions behind the well, scenes that all, well, look all at the of military the stuff. are dealing with. Yes. Well, and look at the military stuff over the last couple of weeks. Well, that's a natural transition. Uh, All of the State Department news came together in the shadow of the security forum in Singapore and multiple military incidents involving the U.S. and China over the past few weeks. So we'll start with this question from Don. He asks, what do you make of the U.S.-China drama at the Shangri-La Dialogue? And for anyone who didn't listen last week, that was the security conference at which the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke. And in advance of that meeting, the U.S. had attempted to broker a meeting between Secretary Austin and Defense Minister Li Shang-Fu. And those efforts failed in part because the U.S. has refused to lift sanctions on Li. Um, what did you make of, of what happened there? You predicted uh, on last week's show there would be a, a good bit of spicy rhetoric at the forum what did you think of the interactions you saw? Um, well, first, before we jump to that, I should add, of course, that um, 
several weeks ago in terms of interactions, and this actually came before Secretary of State Blinken, is the head of the CIA, Director Burns, went. That's um, right. Yes. Which, which was interesting. Um, and I think, again, uh, a sign that there, you know, conversations have been happening, that there are they're trying, both sides are trying to keep things from spiraling out of control. Um, so anyway, back to your question. No surprise, the Chinese side didn't agree to an official meeting. I mean, the general Lee's under sanctions, and mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he, he it, it would have. It's important that they talk. I mean, it's it's important more that maybe the more folks below them talk officially. And it's not clear, you know, how much gets done at, at their level. But um, from a from a sort of a signaling perspective, it would have been good if they met. But it's not a surprise that the Chinese side refused that. Um, the two speeches were you know, laying out different visions and views of sort of Asia Pacific. The Chinese one was, um, you know, the, Chi- the Chinese are trying to revise definitions around um, freedom of navigation in the sea and the air. You know, they're, they were very critical of the U.S. surveillance flights. And while the, the meeting was happening, there was a transit with a U.S. ship and a Canadian ship through the Taiwan Straits, which is in international waters up the, mm-hmm. media, up the middle of the strait. And a PLA Navy ship cut in front of the U.S. ship from 150 yards. And, you know, but the Chinese, the Chinese are, again, they've very recently in the last several months or years or so have become much more vocal about saying that actually the Taiwan Straits is not international waters. Right. Um, and, and, you know, they're. Do they have any and, basis for that claim? Well, I mean, they, 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 they put out all sorts of papers trying to craft these arguments based in international law about why the U.S. is mistaken and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the reality is, is that no one else is buying it. Mm-hmm. No, no, no other serious country is buying it, put it that way. Right. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, the, the, one of the things like these close-in surveillance flights where the U.S. say they're flying international airspace, but, you know, the Chinese, there was something in Chinese media recently, you know, basically saying, well, but they can, they can view into Chinese territory with their sensors, which is an interesting definition of like, you can only fly if you can't like <laughs> see the shore. I mean, yeah. Well, what's I mean. the, what, you know, it, it, but, but I think the point that the real, the real, the real point is that these, these surveillance flights, the Chinese don't like them. Um, the U S does them. It, it isn't actually clear how much value the U S now gets from them, but um, it, it, the U S is, is not gonna just sort of unilaterally stop at this point, because then it looks like they've caved to PRC coercion, which doesn't fly domestically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then the sort of these freedom of navigation operations, what they call it, like going up the Taiwan Straits or going through in the South China sea near the artificial outposts that the Chinese built. Um, those, those I think will continue. And it, it just, you know, the real question is to the Chinese, you know, they, they seem to be playing. I, have, I was in a meeting this morning with, with somebody who's a, you know, expert on the PLA and used to work with the U.S. government and has covered this a lot. You know, this person put it, they said the Chinese, you know, they're, they're playing chicken with the U.S. military. Right. And, you know, this person said, look, the U.S. military is unlikely to play chicken back because they're far more professional. They, they're used to these encounters. It's, you know, had these with the Soviets during the Cold War. Um, so. So the risk, there is though a risk of an accident. And then what happens if there's an accident? How does that get contained as sort of an isolated mishap versus spiraling into something much worse? And I think that there's clearly uh, something that, that a lot of people in the region are concerned about. I think that's clearly something like at the Shangri-La Dialogue. It's, again, it, you know, it, nobody in the region wants a conflict between the U.S. and China. Mm-hmm. It's a disaster for everybody. Yeah, well, and it, it clearly, well, I don't know if it is clear. I mean, is there any chance that this is a sort of rogue situation where someone accidentally went 150 yards in front no. of? Yeah, exactly. Like the, no. that's that's the aspect that's concerning is it, it, right. it? you would think that this is being co-signed from like high up in the government to basically screw with naval vessels well, and fighter jets. And, 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 you know, you've got, there was some incursions of a research vessel into Vietnamese um, off Vietnam recently while, you know, it's just that the, the Chinese have, you know, a different 
understanding or a different view of what counts as as waters and they can i mean look their ships into defense minister lee he said that at the conference this past weekend he said on south china sea thanks to the concerted efforts of regional countries the situation in south china sea has generally remained stable and regional exchanges and cooperation have grown stronger However, we do see some countries outside the region exercise their hegemony of, of navigation in the name of freedom of navigation. They want to muddy the waters so they can rake in profits. Regional countries should stay highly vigilant and firmly reject these acts. Solidarity among regional countries needs to be cherished. And um, yeah, I don't know where that leaves the U.S. because these are international waters, uh, but it's it's scary watching from thousands of miles away and wondering what happens if a, a 150 yard like military exercise turns into just a crash at some point and, no, and I mean, where it, that leaves us. I, I think that, you know, we have to hope that, that the professionalism, professionalism um, prevails and that there isn't this kind of mishap, but the thing like the hegemony of navigation, that, that phrase is, is interesting because, you know, and, and the idea that, oh, the U S doesn't belong in the region. Right. Which, again, you know, most of the countries, many of the countries in the region obviously don't believe that. But there is a there is a sort of a concerted propaganda effort around, you know, the U.S. isn't part of Asia. The the U.S. is, you know, basically it's it's anomalous that the U.S. is in Asia at all. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's sort of this. And the Chinese like to push this kind of idea of sort of Asia for the Asians. And therefore, the, the U.S. is the interloper. The U.S. is the problem. If they would go away, then everybody would be fine. Because, of course, if the U.S. goes away, everybody has to basically do what China says. Exactly. So, yes. of course, China doesn't want. But the hegemony of navigation phrase is interesting because, again, you know, the U.S. hegemonism is a, is a big part of the sort of the, the, the delegitimizing, criticizing U.S. Um, sort of various levels of official media propaganda campaigns the Chinese are pushing. And so this is a, it fits with that sort of narrative, sort of the narrative of the U S is the big bad hegemon. Mm -hmm. And, but I think it also fits with this idea where they're trying to reshape understandings of sort of freedom of navigation, international law of the sea, et cetera, so that they, they re, you know, and they, and they signed on to like the UN convention of law of sea. The U S has not, although the U S says it, it does abide by it, but you know, the, some folks will tell well, from the Chinese side will say, well, this, these rules were not, you know, set by the other countries. And, but in fact, the Chinese signed on it, onto it like 40 years ago, uh, but now they're trying to revise it and just because, ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. And so things like, I mean, one of the really interesting things that I think is, is definitely needs a lot of attention is the, um, this trying to redefine the Taiwan Straits as a, basically domestic waterway right um which which is and unilaterally so impose that definition right. on the rest and, of the world and i think that we should expect to see a lot more of the kind of incidents we saw over the weekend where you have close encounters with pla navy ships um so long as the u.s and probably will do so with uh, with other countries together tries to run these freedom navigation operations through the straits Yes. Well, hopefully we avoid any collisions in the near term. I mean, you you referenced the the fighter pilot incident. I mean, that was old news by this weekend because of the incident in the, the Taiwan Strait with the the two right. ships. But there. you have to remember these videos: the video of the of the of the fighter plane. Um, what did someone call it? They called it thumping, where they basically cut across the front of the front of the u.s reconnaissance plane to yes the and it, plane it, had to it was fly through the jet wash an unnecessarily aggressive maneuver right. by it wasn't our, it wasn't Americans. as bad as it one a few a couple months ago or last month it was the u.s called unsafe which was even worse mm -hmm. um and then but the videos of that aerial encounter the videos of the the encounter in the taiwan straits of course are all over the chinese internet and people are like hey this is great we're standing up to the u.s yeah Right. I mean, and so and so, again, everyone has domestic politics. It plays well domestically. Well, and speaking of playing well domestically on a lighter note, uh, I did enjoy the Global Times, their reaction to Lee's speech. Uh, they wrote, it is worth noting that the venue was packed during Lee's speech. Even the aisles were filled after the end of the speech. The applause burst from the crowd, which was obviously different from the polite applause after other speeches. 
sounded a little bit like President Trump, actually. Um, <laughs> maybe we're not so different after all. But um, I enjoyed you retweeted an attendee who said this was not my experience in the yes. room. But um, people are free to interpret applause however they like. Uh, one other note on U.S.-China. Wanted to highlight what Jake Sullivan said about the one China policy. So here's what he said. Well, first of all, the entire Taiwan policy of the United States is built on uh, a series of internal tensions. The one China policy, if you begin to unpack it, you will recognize that it is about dealing in a world of internal tension within the policy and trying to manage those tensions effectively to ensure peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. This is not a model of clarity, the one China policy. That's not a Biden administration issue. That's been true from the moment of the Shanghai communique. But the thing is, what it lacks in clarity, the one China policy has succeeded in actually achieving the practical objective of decades of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. That's why our policy hasn't changed. That's why we believe the one China policy should continue to ensure that there are no unilateral changes to the status quo from either side, and that we maintain that peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait for decades to come. So if the new DPP candidate becomes president and takes some steps toward Taiwanese independence, you would oppose that? We have been public in saying we do not support Taiwan independence. What we support is an effort to ensure that there are not unilateral changes to the status quo by Taiwan or by the PRC. And I was equally clear with Wang Yi, that some of the actions China has been taking in terms of its military buildup, its aggressive posture towards Taiwan, are themselves challenging that status quo in ways that undermine peace and stability. What we are looking for is the continuation of that basic, uh, stable, cross-strait dynamic that has allowed both the PRC and Taiwan and the people of those two uh, territories to do well and for the rest of the world not have to deal with a conflict that would end up cratering the global economy. And Bill, I include that mainly because we talked about the one China policy in the past and a couple different times when it's been awkwardly characterized from President Biden. But I thought that was a very good summary of what the U.S. policy actually is and why we're invested in continuing. It is, and it's also a good summary of why it, it may not be sustainable. I mean, a couple of comments. One, I think that, and, and this is someone who's spent a lot of time on this, pointed out to me, his use of the two ter- the word two territories, the word two territories, um, probably not going to be reassuring to the Chinese side. Um mm-hmm. But whatever. But more importantly, the fundamental assumption is that the Chinese side wants the status also wants the status quo to continue. And I think that is where the problems come up because it has been 50 years. Um, the status quo has held. It's very, as the national security advisor described, it's, it's, it's very um, convoluted, tenuous, but it's held. But I don't think Xi Jinping and, you know, you certainly have heard from the Chinese side, the so-called status quo. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that he's someone who wants, he's not happy with the status quo. He doesn't want the status quo to hold for the rest of his life. And that goes back to, and this is not me saying, well, oh, there, and he's going to invade, you know, the sort of the invade in 2027 or, you know, right. That is not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that I think that it, it, the fundamental tension is that the U S and Taiwan are pushing for something that the other big country with agency doesn't necessarily want anymore. Mm-hmm. And that country is a lot more powerful and a lot richer than it was when this agreement was made. And this country is a lot more, you know, on a relative power balance basis, it's grown a lot closer to the U.S. power. And it may be in that particular part of the world, in some cases, have exceeded U.S. power, certainly has far exceeded Taiwan's power. And so right. that's where it gets, that's where I think ultimately you can't look at this problem and be optimistic that there's like a good solution, which is why you've had a bunch of experts. We've talked about it before. They're basically the, the best thing you can do is figure out a way to kick the can down the road. Right. And, and Sullivan articulated that well, and this was in a sit down with Fareed Zakaria and CNN. But your point is well taken that at the end of the day, and it's something to keep in mind with the 
efforts to reestablish communication and repair the relationship and everything else, a lot of this comes back to Xi Jinping and what he wants and the ceiling that he puts on what's possible as far as how healthy the dynamics are ever going to be if he's in charge, given some of the changes that he's instituted both domestically and as far as the PRC foreign policy is concerned. I think there, and maybe the head of Indo-PACOM, I was a U.S. military officer who, I forget where I read it, but he basically was quoted as basically saying, our job is to make it so that Xi Jinping wakes up and decides that today is not the day. Yeah. And, and that's, that's like, the best I mean, we can hope for. They're, they're the guys who have to deal with this. They're the ones who are really in the line of fire, literally, if something happens. And I think that is the best articulation is like, make it so that the status quo can hold as long as possible, but have no that's no, and I don't think anyone is, but you can't pretend that there's a solution to the status quo that is acceptable to the U.S. or Taiwan now or probably in the foreseeable future. Yep. Yes. Well, speaking of Xi, we can move on from U.S. China. Uh, you wrote in your newsletter, Xi went to Inner Mongolia to inspect efforts to curb desertification. Uh, he held a meeting with leaders from Inner Mongolia, Ningxia. Gansu and Xinjiang, among other officials, the PRC has made amazing progress in curbing desertification, but recently there has been an uptick in sandstorms hitting parts of the country and especially Beijing. The Ministry of Ecology and Environment said recently that Mongolia was the main source of recent sandstorms. In the readout from Xi's tour, he says, quote, more should be done to promote international communication and cooperation, such as participating in the global efforts of controlling desertification, supporting sand control in Belt and Road countries, and facilitating policy dialogues and information sharing among different countries. Um, Why is desertification a problem in China? To what extent is it a problem? And and what are some of the things the government is doing to try to curb it? This is one of the things I love about reading cynicism is I discover issues that I I just would never have thought of in the past. Well, I think, you know, the officials who are at the meeting, you know, they represent uh, provinces or autonomous regions that, you know, have a lot of desert. I mean, there's a lot of China in that sort of north, north, northwestern parts are are actually desert, including like the famous Gobi Desert, right? That Mm -hmm. inner Mongolia and into Mongolia. And um, so over the last few decades, the Chinese, you know, they've had a big problem of sandstorms, like literally... Um, I mean, you, you've seen crazy videos from like sandstorms in the Middle East, but you know, I remember one time it must've been like 2000 and this is the biggest one I remember was, I think it was 2007 in Beijing. You know, it, it's basically everything goes dark. It turns like a dark orange because you just have this, this winds bring these just clouds of sand and dirt from yeah. like inner Mongolia, Mongolia up there. And, you know, I remember waking up one morning after one and literally it was like it had snowed sand on our deck. Totally. I mean, it, it was, my, it was wife, crazy. my wife grew up in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and they wouldn't have snow days, obviously, but they would have sandstorm days where no, everybody she, would so stay she home. Knows. And, and so it's a huge problem. And so they they put a, a, a big effort into building, I think they, even in the readout yesterday, they talk about like the the great, the green great wall they're trying to build tens and tens of millions of trees and other types of vegetation um to basically as sort of a break to 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 keep the you know to keep the sand from being you know from from actually being lifted up and blown to the rest Uh, of china so so the concern is is it that deserts are expanding and like it's the sabotaging yeah, it's there's expanding, they're sabotaging land. It's and and you know the problem is that China has a lot of resources. This and these sandstorms, like in Beijing, had had not completely gone away, but had been um, had, had becoming in far less frequency and severity. And then for the last year, though, all of a sudden they got pretty bad again. Mm-hmm. And you know the Chinese say it comes from Mongolia, and the Mongolians I don't think are nearly as active in trying to fight desertification, desertification as the Chinese are. Right. Um, and so that and probably it, don't have as many resources. That well, exactly. The right. It, it. Yeah. It, exactly. And so, um, but no, a lot, a lot of China is arid, is a desert, doesn't have enough water. Um, I mean, there's, they're just, again, you know, we talk about China and, you know, we just talked about the PLA and U.S. relations. I mean, the China also has a whole bunch of 
massive problems around the environment, around water, around desertification that um, in some areas, they really have made quite a lot of pretty remarkable progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it it was interesting. I went down the rabbit hole in the wake of reading your newsletter, and uh, they've taken a lot of steps over the last 10 or 20 years here. Um, And uh, it's just one of those things that sitting here in America, I think, I'm thinking of Beijing and Shanghai and I forget what a massive country China is and, and and like the amount of desert they have. Um, so the more, you know, as I say, subscribe to cynicism, um, and, and, uh, let's run through some questions here. Kevin asks, why is the CPC seemingly so unwilling to stimulate the economy more aggressively when inflation is so weak and they have the fiscal space to do so? parentheses, at least at the central government level. Are they worried about the path most developed economies have gone down that they don't even want to consider more aggressive means of stimulus, especially to consumers slash households? What are the conditions under which they might have a change of heart? What do you think? Uh, No, that's a great question. I think the conditions under which they may have a change of heart are if things really spiral out of control. I think that so far as bad as things seem, they're not yet calamitous. At least that appears to be the judgment from the center. Um, You know, one has to wonder sometimes about information flows. Um, I do think, though, that it is important to remember, you know, one of the signature policies of Xi Jinping from the last several years before the 20th Party Congress, but also in the 20th Party Congress, is um, shifting the growth model in China to sort of what they call this new development concept or, you know, high-quality growth and trying to avoid the traps of the previous era that led to, um, you know, just the sort of crazy overinvestment in infrastructure, the crazy accumulation of debt that they're still dealing with. And so in many ways, I mean, they certainly could start simulating like crazy. The, the local government finances are problematic, or the central government has firepower left. But, you know, the Chinese phrase basically means like drinking poison to quench your thirst. Mm. And 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 so in many ways, I think that is what they believe that if they go back to sort of let's let's do let's let it rip on infrastructure spending, let's let it rip on the real estate market so people can start speculating again, that will definitely pop things for a period of time, but it probably will make the problems worth medium to longer term. Right. And so but it is a really interesting question because a lot of people, um, a, a lot of economists inside China, you know, investors that they're they're really they've been expecting something more. Because it, it the 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 sort of the COVID exit wave recovery has been not nearly it's been more of a puff and a fizzle than a, like a big boom. Yeah, and it seems like the, mo- a lot of the momentum has slowed. Is that no? It's a- slowed a lot, and the external environment is not great, right? I mean, the exports are not where they want them to be, and so it's a really important question. I think you know one of the things it goes back to is you've got. Xi Jinping, where I think he has a different idea. He doesn't think that the super fast growth matters as much as his predecessors did or people want him to believe. He has other political goals. This shifting the growth model sort of on paper makes sense. Mm-hmm. But the problem, the problem is getting from here to there and how they do it and how they keep people happy and confident. And, you know, for example, there's a at least you know, a pretty significant problem with youth unemployment that is unlikely to get better in the near term. Yeah, we talked um, about that a couple months ago. About, yeah, and, and, and that is that the is details are even worse than we realized. And, and the numbers are the numbers are probably worse than the official stats because I think a lot of places sort of pretend like they like it just it, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And it and so it it's it's actually again, I mean we had a long conversation this morning at this, this meeting about no one had a great answer because you would think they would be acting more concerned about, if things are as bad about sort of goosing the economy, if things are as bad as people seem to think they are and as bad as they look. And yet politically, Xi Jinping is not there, hasn't made the decision that, you know, we got to we got to sort of they're just trying to sort of tweak at the margins. And part of the problem is, I mean, the, 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 there aren't a lot of great. I mean, they, they have this massive mountain of debt, um, both local level and in certain sectors of the economy that does create some constraints for what they want to do, but they also don't seem to be that concerned about, say, bailing out the local governments who have you know trillions and trillions of, of debt. And so it, it, 
it's a bit of a, I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer. It's a bit of a head scratcher at this point. Yeah, no, it's interesting because his second question there, what are the conditions under which they might have a change of heart? Hearing you answer, it sounds like the conditions are already here in some ways that might theoretically induce a change of well, policy. Well, one thing, you know, and we, we've sort of seen this a couple of times, especially most recently with the with the crackdown on the real estate sector, where there were a whole bunch of really good reasons to crack down in real estate. Things were out of control, but, you know, they went so hard at it. I think they overcompensated mm-hmm. and they they actually got to the point where they accelerated a crisis in, in some areas in real estate. And, you know, one of the questions is, well, did they not, did they not see what was happening? And so then the question now is, well, okay, they, they, they appear to feel like they can manage this as is without having to go back to the old stimulus playbook. You know, this is a really complicated place, a really complicated economy, lots of agents in the economy, not just sort of top-down, you know, command economy. What if they're wrong? What if they wait too long, mm-hmm. right? They, and, and will it have to be something that looks more like a bit of a crisis that then forces their hand? Right. And, you know, the, the other side of that, too, though, is it's hard. And this is a, a long term discussion that and sort of debate around sort of Western economist pundits predictions over the last few decades of why the they're going to have, you know, X, this was going to be a problem or that was in collapse or whatever. They have a whole different toolbox than, say, the U.S. does to manage economic downturns. And by that, I mean, specifically, one is all the money, you know, they don't have a problem with foreign creditors. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, it's a very self-contained economy in many ways. They also have a whole set of administrative measures and security measures that they can take to tamp things down and move things around and squeeze down on protests and people are unhappy in ways that say the U.S. doesn't have if there's some sort of a crisis. Um, which again, in the short to medium term means that maybe it's not a crisis, but it builds up the pressures and, and pushes and, the problem down the road and eventually makes it metastasize and get much worse. Right. The question is, how are they going to define crisis for the purposes of taking right. action here? So like, so there was a bit of a crisis last year when all of a sudden a whole bunch of people, you know, there was this in China, a lot of real estate, like new real estate developments, the you you buy the apartment before the building is completed. It's called the, a, like a pre-sale, mm-hmm. and you you know you give a down payment to the developer, you get a mortgage, you pay the bank your mortgage. The bank then is supposed to be give the money to the developer. The developer is supposed to keep the money for that project in a specific account that just goes to pay for that project. But of course they don't because they need the cash. So you had hundreds of complexes around the country where all of a sudden basically developers ran out of money. And so they were, so you paid for a, a house. That so never people got were paying, you were, they apartment. were paying their monthly mortgage rates for apartments that were never going to get finished. And so they went on strike and they stopped paying the bank and they started doing all over the country in all sorts of cities, organizing online. And that, that's a crisis. No, that was a crisis. <laughs> and then there was a, there was a different layers of responses, including suddenly some money was freed up to basically to go to like focus on getting projects completed. Mm-hmm. Right. But that, you know, that was an unsurprising outcome of the fact that a whole bunch of developers had their access to financing cut off because of because of this change in policy um, the year before or thereabouts. Right. And, and so, again, it, but it's not resolved. Right. They, they, they made some progress, but not a lot because it wasn't enough money. And, you know, it's just it's a mess. And and so it looked like a crisis. They stepped in. It wasn't it, it sort of. And then, of course, they censor things, right? So now you don't know nearly as much as how many places are affected. It may be that very few were solved, but you're not going to know that now because people can't go online to talk about it in the way that they could when they sort of surprised the officials by suddenly this happened and it wasn't something anyone had really thought about before. Yes. Well, speaking of going online, Tom says, you guys covered the Microsoft finds malware in Guam story the other day. I think the truly significant thing here is that this signals a potential shift in PRC cyber operations and what that says about the potential for future conflict. I write a policy-focused cybersecurity newsletter and covered it here, but here's a short summary of my take. One, the PRC has not previously conducted destructive cyber operations. It now looks like they are at least preparing for them, which I think is a pretty significant change. Two, the report was part of a coordinated disclosure with both official government and industry reports released at the same time. 
Three, there was no evidence in any of these reports to back up Microsoft's assessment that the hacking group was, quote, pursuing development of capabilities that could disrupt critical communications infrastructure between the United States and Asia region during future crises. But these statements don't just get added willy-nilly. I'm certain that the government 100% agrees with Microsoft's assessment. The question is, why is the PRC policy shifting now? At one level, is it just logical that modern military forces think about how to incorporate cyber operations into military planning? Is this just an indication that China's military and its cyber operators are becoming better integrated? Or is the PLA expecting conflict over Taiwan? I tend to think that countries invested these types of capabilities when they think they need them, he writes. But that logic doesn't necessarily eliminate either possibility. Um, and I thought that was interesting follow up to the conversation yeah, uh, no, on is. the last episode. And yes, I, I it would have shocked me if China wasn't investing in cyber operations and, and destructive cyber capacity. I'm sure the U.S. has similar capacity. So um I'm, well, we know I, we do. I mean, we had with the Israelis, they did Stuxnet, right? That's on right. The, Stuxnet. Attack on, on Iran's nuclear program. You know, it's a great question. I don't know. And, and this, the short answer, I thought it was also interesting that the announcement was not only coordinated with industry, but also the National Security Agency and its counterparts at the other four Five Eyes grouping, mm-hmm. right? So this was a, um, this was clearly something that they all were concerned about. You know, is this the first time the PRC has done this as alleged or is this the first time it's been discovered? Right. That's um, that's where I would be surprised if this was the first time that the and, PRC. Has right. And, and uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Is it is it something is it part of sort of the general hardening we're seeing around um, preparing for worst case scenarios as or extreme scenarios, as Xi Jinping talked about in the uh, recent sort of meeting the National Security Commission, which then some loudmouth scholar helpfully defined in the Global Times when he talked about extreme scenarios as meaning in case there's a war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the PLA, if you have an army, their job is to prepare for war. Right. So, so certainly this could be part of what they do. You know, you build missiles, you build cyber weapons. And, you know, who knows? Again, this is all speculation, but um, I think there are reasons there's it's one of the reasons why it looks like the various governments were extremely concerned by what they found. Right, exactly. And it just underscores the need for vigilance in terms of the next steps in that region. And it's why the Five Eyes have been concerned for several years now about the way things are evolving. Um, and we we say Five Eyes several times on the podcast, uh, just in case anyone is unaware that is an intelligence alliance composed of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. And again, they were all in lockstep with that Microsoft uh, malware announcement. So uh, to keep it moving, Karen says, I'd like to know more about traveling to China now. I keep talking to people with long careers in Chinese studies or business, and they say maybe they'll never go again. But after seeing Return to Dust, I want to go. I found myself arguing that women are unlikely to be political hostages. My colleagues in Shanghai seem keen for me to visit. But will anyone invite me to speak now? How can we keep face-to-face communication alive and fertile? Do you have thoughts here, Bill? I mean, um, I've known plenty of people who've gone back recently and have had no problems. There have been some instances where people have been stopped at the border and not let in. Um, that's a pain, but definitely better than being allowed in and not allowed out. Um, but I, I don't think there's any question that that the risks do appear to have increased and that more people are concerned and thinking about risks in the way you didn't three, you know, you didn't before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any advice. I don't know the questioner's background. Um, I think the idea that women would be somehow not subject to something because of gender. I think that is, um, I wouldn't be so confident about that. I mean, it just, I think if they think you're a problem or they think there's a reason they want to hassle you, they're going to hassle you dependent, you know, whoever you are. Right. It's, it's really more about your background, what you do, what, what you've said or what you've worked on in the past um, or working on currently, I think. Um, but again, it's definitely a conversation a lot of people are having. Nobody has a great answer because you don't know for sure. And you certainly don't want to say, oh, yeah, no problem. You'll be fine. You also don't want to say, oh, my God, you can never go. 
it's mm-hmm. it's an individual decision unless you know you're part of a bigger institution or company you know then they would have i'm sure their set of policies or sort of risk management work to to help you decide whether or not it really makes sense right but for but it's just individuals sad. it's just sad that you have to think about it Right. This reminded me of the editorial in the Wall Street Journal from this past weekend from Ling Ling Wei. I, I don't know whether you saw that, um, but oh yeah, that's good. It's poignant. Yeah, it was a it was a poignant reflection on on her journey um, to becoming an American citizen and, and sort of the bilateral relationship that the U.S. and China used to have and how that has changed. Um, and it underscores what we've lost in terms of the mm-hmm. the back and forth and, and the way lives would change and perspectives would expand. And it's one of the reasons all of this is pretty tragic. But but I, I will say, I mean, the, the thing is, is you've got U.S.-China relationship and you know, the broader backdrop is Xi Jinping in a different view of national security. And, you know, the things have accelerated because of U.S.-China tensions, but I think he fundamentally has a, um, he's sort of less, he's more concerned about foreigners than his predecessors were. And he certainly has beefed up and unleashed and empowered the security services in ways that his predecessor hadn't. Yeah, well. And, and And once that, once that bureaucracy gets, you know, unleashed it, empowered and gets more money. What do you think they do that sit around like, oh yeah, I'm not gonna do anything now. It's okay. US and China had a nice conversation, so we're gonna back down. No, this thing takes on a life of its own. Right. And and to take one small specific example, uh, Don Wineland on Twitter tweeted how the reopening of China is going. My friend runs a bar in a large city. The police have just told him that foreigners who entered the bar must register, quote unquote, Fill out a form with name, passport number, phone number, employer, residential address. All this has nothing to do with COVID. I mean, like, that's pretty unsettling. And I can't imagine, like, going through that process in the broader yeah, context. Yeah, I'm curious, I'm curious how many more places are like that. I, 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 that's, that seemed a little extreme strange and strange and non-scalable. Plus, you probably have a lot of Bart Simpsons with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> yeah. passport Good solution. There you <laughs> in go. In a drunken sprawl, right? See, this <laughs> is why people subscribe to Bill, you know, advice like that. Um, yeah. Okay. Two more <laughs> questions. First, Joel says, how does membership in the CCP work? Can anyone become a member? What is the pipeline for membership to leadership roles look like? Do you have like a oh, Cliff a Notes version? Okay. No, it's very selective. It is a it is a process. People have to recommend you. You have to be vetted. You have to go through a. Um, uh, it's it's usually don't get in the first time. I think Xi Jinping famously talks about he was rejected. I forget the exact number, but multiple times before they let him in. Um, and certainly soon after Xi Jinping came to power, there was I think a drop in the number of party members because he was they were calling basically he was trying to get higher quality members and get rid mm. of some of the the bad eggs um, membership since then, I think has grown again. Um, but it is a, um, it, it's a, it's a real, it's a real process. It's not simple. Interesting. Okay. Well, at some point we're going to expand on this question. I want to yeah. know more about that process. And are you, are, are you going to join? Well, I, it sounds like a pretty involved process and I've got a newborn at home. So I don't know, maybe I next know. year, give it I mean, a couple you know, years. You, you know, that somebody, um, you know, anytime you talk about China, everyone attacks you from every side. And there's somebody who has referred to cynicism as Sino-communism because I'm such a I'm a I'm a panda hugger. Uh, um, and so, you know, so that could, could be, work in my favor. There yeah, this go. could be the entry point. We could actually turn out to be the <laughs> the first podcast with a CCP cell in uh, in the U.S., right? Wow. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I see. I don't know because we've been blacklisted <laughs> by Elon and he's in, in lockstep with the party, but um, I we could should be try, wrong We there. should try again. I think he's pretty <laughs> desperate for money right now. That's so you true. Never, Great maybe point. Maybe I'll try again this time. He needs the advertising dollars. Um, all right. Final note from Bloomberg. Chinese scientists have begun drilling a 10,000 meter parentheses, 32,808 feet, hole into the Earth's crust as the world's second largest economy explores new frontiers above and below the planet's surface. Drilling for what is set to be China's deepest ever borehole began in the country's oil-rich Xinjiang region on Tuesday, according to the official Xinhua News Agency. Earlier that morning, China sent its first civilian astronaut into space from the Gobi Desert, 
the narrow shaft in the ground will penetrate more than 10 continental strata or layers of rock, according to the report, and reach the Cretaceous system in the Earth's crust, which features rock dating back some 145 million years. The project will provide data on the Earth's internal structure while also testing deep underground drilling technologies, according to China Natural Petroleum Corp., which is spearheading the project. The drilling is expected to take 457 days. Um, Bill, I only read that because it was an amazing non sequitur as I was trying to follow everything that was happening in Singapore this past weekend and then the Blinken news. This bubbled to the surface and it was like, oh, yeah, okay. So China's also drilling a 32,000 foot hole into the center of the earth. And I don't know what they're going to find down there. I guess we can check back in 457 days and see see what it turns into. China, in many ways, for science, is a very exciting place. They're putting a huge amount of money into all sorts of scientific exploration, space, earth, uh, ocean, uh, I mean, what's interesting, right? I remember this story was in Chinese media last week. It was like, ah, oh, it sounds pretty cool. And then, of course, it sort of gets, but it gets legs and sort of, in some case, some overseas publications takes on a little bit of more of an ominous, ominous tone. But, you know, the Washington Post has this long story yesterday about how a group of researchers are drilling at this spot in the Atlantic where the they have access to rock from the Earth's mantle that has sort of come up to closer to the seabed. Mm. And it's really cool. I mean, they're drilling down several thousand feet, but the drilling cores are from rocks that are actually came from below where the Chinese are drilling. Wow. And it was just how, like, we know very little about what happens in the earth. So it's actually, you know, I mean, again, this is something where, you know, the fact that it's the oil companies drilling means this is the techniques will probably be used for finding oil. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are all sorts of scientific benefits from this kind of this kind of stuff, and it'd be great if there were collaboration, more collaboration. Absolutely, it is a great example of where countries should be collaborating on this stuff, and let's all drill through the ten continental strata. Well, together. you know, you always heard these like you dig a hole in the U.S. Oh, you're going to dig through to China? Maybe they're digging through to America, <laughs> yeah, right? Well, just, <laughs> tell the Chinese kids that. Right? There you go, bilateral passage. That's what we're <laughs> yeah. trying to bring back here. Um, so on so that I don't note, know. I mean, I, you know, I, I just think it's one of those things where um, more power to them as long as the results are shared, and you know, if if it helps them with oil gas exploration and they find more deposits, if that's part of what they're trying to do. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, people can check out the show notes for more information on this project. And um, also, uh, I forgot to mention Seymour Hirsch, a tough week for the most popular journalist in the PRC after his Nord Stream 2 theories were, I don't know if you want to say they're officially debunked, but severely undermined by some of the reporting that surfaced in the Washington Post this week. Uh, you know, today CCTV online has a, they're, they're pumping a piece from the gray zone about, they, they put up this piece of the a, a U.S. Navy diver's boot was found near the site of the explosions, therefore proving that the U.S. Oh, Navy. Oh boy. Hang on to the boot. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and we'll see, I have not, you know, we'll see when must, when, sorry, when, um, Seymour Hearst reappears on Chinese state TV with the sort of the up nostril webcam shot that he's oh, yeah. famous for um <laughs> i have not seen one recently but uh we, we've they've we'll see now of course the last couple of days really today yesterday and today is who blew up the dam mm. and one of the things i was looking at today was this um a, a lot of the websites were pushing these sort of tucker carlson claims from his tucker on twitter video that of course the ukrainians blew it up right which I- means of course the u.s blew it up i mean at some point, the, I think Chinese propaganda, they'll, they'll regret it because he will be anti-China more and more at some point, I think. But he says a lot of things that they like to... Like convenient for them. <laughs> they like to disseminate. They like to amplify. Well, yeah. yes. Um, all part of the adventure here. And that will probably get us hate mail. I'm curious to see what the overlap is between sharp China listeners and Tucker Carlson. Tucker, Tucker heads. Yeah, I didn't catch his 10-minute uh, Twitter debut, but maybe it's I should actually pretty. Up. It's it. It basically is like really that's the best you can do. I mean, that looks like a it looks like a sort of a semi decent video podcast uh, monologue. Yeah, well, he's missing all the graphics and special effects teams from Fox days, I think. Interesting. I was 
wondering what took him so long. Um, I figured they were working out the kinks, but it sounds like it's pretty bare bones. Um, can't say I'm surprised as a Twitter user over the past year or so that the functionality is fairly limited to, to start here. Um, but, I am going to buy ads for this podcast, by the way. Just see if it works. Yes, as a okay. test. We can report And, and if back. we're blocked again, then there's a problem and we're going we're gonna to have to figure it out. Okay. Well, time will tell. Everybody should tune in next week to find out how the Sharp China Twitter advertising experiment <laughs> goes. For now, Bill, it's great to see you. Be careful of the smog outside. Um, I know your your lungs are steeled after years in Beijing, but that's wrong word. But yeah, no it's... no strenuous activity for you or Tashi. And um, I will talk to you next week. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. All right, and that's the end of the free preview. If you'd like to subscribe and receive full episodes of this show, you can do that in two ways. First, you can go to Sinicism.com and sign up for Bill's newsletter, which will also give you access to all of our Sharp China shows. Or if you want to receive all our Sharp China episodes, along with daily analysis of the tech business from Ben Thompson, several other podcasts about technology, and more shows that we'll be adding in the months to come, you can click the link in your show notes and subscribe to Stratechery Plus. Plus.